0: Welcome back to another World Audiobook, So happy to have you here. Got a double feature for you here today. Hope you guys are ready for this. Uh, um, I had a super short chapter, not super short, but shorter than I like to do. I like to do at least 15 minutes of a chapter if I'm going to call it an episode. This one was a little bit shy. So I did uh, two chapters in one. And so it gets to be an extra long episode. So enjoy. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, but the best way to do it is just tell other people about it. But if you do want to become a sponsor, Uh, of the podcast that would be amazing Uh, we got some amazing people that are sponsoring the podcast and I'm so grateful to each and every one of them so huge shout out and thank you to Ariella and to Brianna thank you guys for being patrons of the podcast hope you guys are getting a a ton of value from it and uh, just so happy to be able to do it for you Um, yeah so now without further ado let's get into the next two chapters of the gods of Mars chapter 12 doomed to die. For an instant I stood there before they fell upon me, but the first rush of them forced me back a step or two. My foot felt for the floor, but found only empty space. I had backed into the pit which had received Isis. For a second I toppled there upon the brink, then I too, with the boy still tightly clutched in my arms, pitched backwards into the black abyss. We struck a polished chute. The opening above us closed as magically as it had opened, and we shot down, unharmed, into a dimly lighted apartment far below the arena. As I rose to my feet, the first thing I saw was the malignant countenance of Isis glaring at me through the heavy bars of a grated door at one side of the chamber. "'Rash mortal!' she shrilled. "'You shall pay the awful penalty for your blasphemy in this secret cell. "'Here you shall lie alone, and in darkness, "'with the carcass of your accomplice festering in its rottenness by your side, "'until crazed by loneliness and hunger "'you feed upon the crawling maggots that were once a man.'" That was all. In another instant she was gone, and the dim light which had filled the cell faded into cimmerian blackness. "'Pleasant old lady,' "'said a voice at my side. "'Who speaks?' I asked. "'Tis I, your companion, "'who has had the honour this day "'of fighting shoulder to shoulder "'with the greatest warrior "'that ever wore metal upon Barsoom.' "'Thank God that you are not dead,' I said. "'I feared for that nasty cut upon your head.' "'It but stunned me,' he replied. "'A mere scratch.' "'Maybe it were as well had it been final,' I said." We seem to be in a pretty fix here, with a splendid chance of dying of starvation and thirst. Where are we? Beneath the arena, I replied. We tumbled down the shaft that swallowed Isis as she was almost at our mercy. He laughed a low laugh of pleasure and relief, and then, reaching out through the inky blackness, he sought my shoulder and pulled my ear close to his mouth. Nothing could be better, he whispered. There are secrets within the secrets of Isis of which Isis herself does not dream. What do you mean? I labored with the other slaves a year since in the remodeling of these subterranean galleries, and at that time we found below these an ancient system of corridors and chambers that had been sealed up for ages. The blacks in charge of the work explored them, taking several of us along to do whatever work there might be occasion for. I know the entire system perfectly. There are miles of corridors, honeycombing the ground beneath the gardens and the temple itself, and there is one passage that leads down to and connects with the lower regions that open on the water-shaft that gives passage to Amin. If we can reach the submarine undetected, we may yet make the sea, in which there are many islands where the blacks never go. There we may live for a time, and who knows what may transpire to aid us to escape. He had spoken all in a low whisper evidently fearing spying ears even here, and so I answered him in the same subdued tone. "'Lead back to Shadow, my friend,' I whispered. "'Zodar, the Black is there. We were to attempt our escape together, so I cannot desert him.' "'No,' said the boy. "'One cannot desert a friend. It were better to be recaptured ourselves than that.' Then he commenced groping his way about the floor of the dark chamber, searching for the trap that led to the corridors beneath." At length, he summoned me by a low st, and I crept toward the sound of his voice, to find him kneeling on the brick of an opening in the floor. "'There is a drop here of about ten feet,' he whispered. "'Hang by your hands, and you will align safely on a level floor of soft sand.' Very quietly, I lowered myself from the inky cell above into the inky pit beneath. So utterly dark was it that we could not see our hands at an inch from our noses. Never, I think— have I known such complete absence of light as existed in the pits of Issus. For an instant I hung in mid-air. There was a strange sensation connected with an experience of that nature which is quite difficult to describe. When the feet tread empty air and the distance below is shrouded in darkness, there is a feeling akin to panic at the thought of releasing the hold and taking the plunge into unknown depths. Although the boy had told me that it was but ten feet to the floor, I experienced the same thrills as though I were hanging above a bottomless pit. Then I released my hold and dropped, four feet, to a soft cushion of sand. The boy followed me. "'Raise me to your shoulders,' he said, "'and I will replace the trap.' This done, he took me by the hand, leading me very slowly, with much feeling about and frequent halts, to assure himself that he did not stray into wrong passageways." Presently, we commenced the descent of a very steep incline. "'It will not be long,' he said. "'Before we shall have light, at the lower levels we meet the same stratum of phosphorescent rock that illuminates mine. "'Never shall I forget that trip through the pits of Issus. While it was devoid of important incidents, yet it was filled for me with a strange charm of excitement and adventure which I think must have hinged principally on the unguessable antiquity of these long-forgotten corridors.' The things which the Stygian darkness hid from my objective eye could not have been half so wonderful as the pictures which my imagination wrought as it conjured to life again the ancient peoples of this dying world, and set them once more to the labors, the intrigues, the mysteries, and the cruelties which they had practiced to make their last stand against the swarming hordes of the dead sea-bottoms that had driven them step by step to the uttermost pinnacle of the world, where they were now entrenched behind an impenetrable barrier of superstition." In addition to the green men, there had been three principal races upon Barsoom, the blacks, the whites, and the race of yellow men. As the waters of the planet dried and the seas receded, all other resources dwindled until life upon the planet became a constant battle for survival. The various races had made war upon one another for ages, and the three higher types had easily bested the green savages of the water places of the world, but now that the receding seas necessitated constant abandonment of their fortified cities and forced upon them a more or less nomadic life in which they became separated into smaller communities, they soon fell prey to the fierce hordes of green men. The result was a partial amalgamation of the blacks, whites, and yellows, the result of which is shown in the present splendid race of red men. I had always supposed that all traces of the original races had disappeared from the face of Mars, yet within the past four days I had found both whites and blacks in great multitudes. Could it be possible that in some far-off corner of the planet there still existed a remnant of the ancient race of yellow men? My reveries were broken in upon by a low exclamation from the boy. "'At last, the lighted way!' he cried, and looking up I beheld at a long distance before us a dim radiance. As we advanced the light increased until presently we emerged into well-lighted passageways." From then on, our progress was rapid, until we came suddenly to the end of a corridor that led directly upon the ledge surrounding the pool of the submarine. The craft lay at her moorings with uncovered hatch. Raising his fingers to his lips, and then tapping his sword in a significant manner, the youth crept noiselessly toward the vessel. I was close at his heels. Silently, we dropped to the deserted deck, and on hands and knees, crawled toward the hatchway. A stealthy glance below revealed no guard in sight. And so, with the quickness and soundlessness of cats, we dropped together into the main cabin of the submarine. Even here was no sign of life. Quickly, we covered and secured the hatch. Then the boy stepped into the pilot house, touched a button, and the boat sank amid swirling water toward the bottom of the shaft. Even then, there was no scurrying of feet as we had expected, and while the boy remained to direct the boat, I slid from cabin to cabin in futile search for some member of the crew." The craft was entirely deserted. Such good fortune seemed almost unbelievable. When I returned to the pilot house to report the good news to my companion, he handed me a paper. "'This may explain the absence of the crew,' he said. It was a radio-aerial message to the commander of the submarine. The slaves have risen. Come with what men you have, and those that you can gather on the way. Too late to get aid from Omin, they are massacring all within the amphitheatre. Isis is threatened. Haste, Zethod. Zethod is dator of the guards of Isis. Explained the youth. We gave them a bad scare; one they will not soon forget. Let us hope that it is but the beginning of the end of Isis. I said. Only our first ancestors know. He replied. We reached the submarine pool in Ormee without incident. Here we debated the wisdom of sinking the craft before leaving her but finally decided that it would add nothing to our chances for escape. There were plenty of blacks and omean to thwart us were we apprehended. However many more might come from the temples and gardens of Issus would not in any way decrease our chances. We were now in a quandary as to how to pass the guards who patrolled the island about the pool. At last, I hit upon a plan. "'What is the name or title of the officer in charge of these guards?' I asked the boy. "'A fellow named Torith was on duty when we entered this morning,' he replied. "'Good. And what is the name of the commander of the submarine?' "'Yersted.' I found a dispatch blank in the cabin and wrote the following order. "'Dator Torith, return these two slaves at once to Shador. Yersted.' "'That will be the simpler way to return,' I said, smiling as I handed the forged order to the boy. "'Come. We shall see now how well it works.' But our swords, he exclaimed, what shall we say to explain them? Since we cannot explain them, we shall have to leave them behind us, I replied. Is it not the extreme of rashness to thus put ourselves again, unarmed, in the power of the firstborn? It is the only way, I answered. You may trust me to find a way out of the prison of Shador, and I think, once out, that we shall find no great difficulty in arming ourselves, once more in a country which abounds so plentifully in armed men. As you say, he replied with a smile and a shrug, I could not follow another leader who inspired greater confidence than you. Come, let us put your ruse to the test. Boldly, we emerged from the hatchway of the craft, leaving our swords behind us, and strode to the main exit which led to the sentry's post and the office of the dator of the guard. At sight of us, the members of the guard sprang forward in surprise, and with leveled rifles halted us. I held out the message to one of them. He took it, and seeing to whom it was addressed, turned and handed it to Torth, who was emerging from his office to learn the cause of the commotion. The black read the order, and for a moment eyed us with evident suspicion. "'Where is De Yosted?' he asked, and my heart sank within me, as I cursed myself for a stupid fool, and not having sunk the submarine to make good the lie that I must tell. "'His orders were to return immediately to the temple landing,' I replied torres took a half-step toward the entrance to the pool, as though to corroborate my story. For that instant, everything hung in the balance, for had he done so, and found the empty submarine still lying at a wharf, the whole weak fabric of my concoction would have tumbled about our heads. But evidently, he decided the message must be genuine. Nor indeed was there any good reason to doubt it, since it would scarce have seemed credible to him that two slaves would voluntarily have given themselves into custody in any such manner as this. It was the very boldness of the plan which rendered it successful. "'Were you connected with the rising of the slaves?' asked Thorth. "'We have just had meagre reports of some such event.' "'All were involved,' I replied, "'but it amounted to little. "'The guards quickly overcame and killed the majority of us.' "'He seemed satisfied with this reply. "'Take them to Shador, he ordered, "'turning to one of his subordinates.' We entered a small boat lying beside the island, and in a few minutes were disembarking upon Shador. Here we were returned to our respective cells. I was Zodar, the boy by himself, and behind locked doors we were again prisoners of the Firstborn. Chapter 13 A Break for Liberty Zodar listened in incredulous astonishment to my narration of events which had transpired within the arena at the rites of Issus. He could scarcely conceive, even though he had already professed his doubt as to the deity of Issus, that one could threaten her with sword in hand and not be blasted into a thousand fragments by the mere fury of her divine wrath. "'It is the final proof,' he said at last.' "'No more is needed to completely shatter the last remnant of my superstitious belief in the divinity of Isis. She is only a wicked old woman, wielding a mighty power for evil, through machinations that have kept her own people and all barsoom in religious ignorance for ages.' "'She is still all-powerful here, however,' I replied, "'so it behooves us to leave in the first moment that appears at all propitious.' I hope that you may find a propitious moment, he said with a laugh, for it is certain that in all my life I have never seen one in which a prisoner of the first born might escape. Tonight will do as well as any, I replied. It will soon be night, said Zorar. How may I aid in the adventure? Can you swim? I asked. No slimy Cillian that hunts the depths of Chorus is more at home in water than is Zodar," he replied. Good. The Red One in all probability cannot swim, I said, since there is scarce enough water in all their domains to float the tiniest craft. One of us, therefore, will have to support him through the sea to the craft we select. I had hoped that we might make the entire distance below the surface, but I fear that the Red Youth could not thus perform the trip. Even the bravest of the brave among them are terrorized at the mere thought of deep water, for it has been ages since their forebears saw a lake, a river, or a sea. "'The Red One is to accompany us?' asked Zodar. "'Yes.' "'It is well. Three swords are better than two, especially when the third is as mighty as this fellow's. I have seen him battle in the arena at the rites of Isis many times. Never until I saw you fight,' had I seen one who seemed unconquerable, even in the face of great odds. One might think you two master and pupil, or father and son. Come to recall his face, there is a resemblance between you. It is very marked when you fight. There is the same grim smile, the same maddening contempt for your adversary, apparent in every movement of your bodies, and in every changing expression of your faces. Be that as it may, Zodar, he is a great fighter, I think that we will make a trio difficult to overcome, and if my friend Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark, were but one of us, we could fight our way from one inner Barsoom to the other, even though the whole world were pitted against us. It will be, said Zodar, when they find from whence you have come, that is but one of the superstitions which Isis has foisted upon a credulous humanity." She works through the holy therns, who are as ignorant of her real self as are the Barsoomians of the outer world. Her decrees are born to the therns, written in blood upon a strange parchment. The poor deluded fools think that they are receiving the revelations of a goddess through some supernatural agency, since they find these messages upon their guarded altars, to which none could have access without detection. I myself have borne these messages for Isis for many years." There is a long tunnel from the temple of Isis to the principal temple of Matai Shang. It was dug ages ago by the slaves of the firstborn, in such utter secrecy that no thern ever guessed its existence. The therns, for their part, have temples dotted about the entire civilized world. Here, priests whom the people never see communicate the doctrine of the mysterious river Is, the Valley Dor, and the Lost Sea of Chorus, to persuade the poor deluded creatures to take the voluntary pilgrimage that swells the wealth of the holy therns, and adds to the number of their slaves. Thus the therns are used as the principal means for collecting the wealth and labor that the firstborn wrest from them as they need it. Occasionally the firstborn themselves make raids upon the outer world. It is then that they capture many females of the royal houses of the red men, and take the newest in battleships, and the trained artisans who build them, that they may copy what they cannot create. We are a non-productive race, priding ourselves upon our non-productiveness. It is criminal for a firstborn to labor or invent. That is the work of the lower orders, who live merely that the firstborn may enjoy long lives of luxury and idleness. With us, fighting is all that counts. Were it not for that, there would be more of the firstborn than all the creatures of Barsoom could support, for in so far as I know, none of us ever dies a natural death. Our females would live forever, but for the fact that we tire of them and remove them to make place for others. Isis alone of all is protected against death. She has lived for countless ages. Would not the other Barsoomians live forever, but for the doctrine of the voluntary pilgrimage which drags them to the bosom of Is at or before their thousandth year? I asked him. I feel now that there is no doubt but that they are precisely the same species of creature as the firstborn, and I hope that I shall live to fight for them in atonement of the sins I have committed against them through the ignorance born of generations of false teaching. As he ceased speaking, a weird call rang out across the waters of Omin. I had heard it at the same time the previous evening, and knew that it marked the ending of the day, when the men of Omin spread their silks upon the deck of battleship and cruiser, and fall into the dreamless sleep of Mars. Our guard entered to inspect us for the last time before the new day broke upon the world above. His duty was soon performed, and the heavy door of our prison closed behind him. We were alone for the night. I gave him time to return to his quarters, as Zodar said he probably would do. Then I sprang to the grated window and surveyed the nearby waters. At a little distance from the island, a quarter of a mile perhaps, lay a monster battleship, while between her and the shore were a number of smaller cruisers and one-man scouts upon the battleship alone was there a watch. I could see him plainly in the upper works of the ship, and as I watched, I saw him spread his sleeping silks upon the tiny platform in which he was stationed. Soon he threw himself at full length upon his couch. The discipline on omin was lax indeed, but it may not be wondered at since no enemy guessed the existence upon Barsoom of such a fleet or even of the first-born or the Sea of Omin. Why, indeed, should they maintain a watch?" Presently I dropped to the floor again and talked with Zodar, describing the various craft I had seen. "'There is one there,' he said. My personal property, built to carry five men, that is the swiftest of the swift. If we can board her, we can at least make a memorable run for liberty.' And then he went on to describe to me the equipment of the boat her engines, and all that went to make her the flyer that she was. In his explanation I recognized a trick of gearing that Kantos Khan had taught me at the time we sailed under false names in the navy of Zodanga, beneath Sab Than, the prince, and I knew then that the firstborn had stolen it from the ships of Helium, for only they are thus geared. And I knew too that Zodar spoke the truth when he lauded the speed of his little craft for nothing that cleaves the thin air of Mars can approximate the speed of the ships of Helium. We decided to wait for an hour at least until all the stragglers had sought their silks. In the meantime, I was to fetch the red youth to our cell, so that we would be in readiness to make our rash break for freedom together. I sprang to the top of our partition wall and pulled myself up onto it. There I found a flat surface about a foot in width, and along this I walked until I came to the cell in which I saw the boy sitting upon his bench. He had been leaning back against the wall, looking up at the glowing dome above Omean, and when he spied me, bouncing upon the partition wall above him, his eyes opened wide in astonishment. Then a wide grin of appreciative understanding spread across his countenance. As I stooped to drop to the floor beside him, he motioned me to wait, and coming close below me, he whispered, "'Catch my hand! I can almost leap to the top of that wall myself!' I have tried it many times, and each day I have come a little closer. Some day I should have been able to make it. I lay upon my belly across the wall, and reached my hand far down toward him. With a little run from the center of the cell, he sprang up until I grasped his outstretched hand, and thus I pulled him to the wall's top beside me. You were the first jumper I ever saw among the red men of Barsoom, I said. He smiled. It is not strange. I will tell you why when we have more time. Together, we returned to the cell in which Zodar sat, descending to talk to him until the hour had passed. There we made our plans for the immediate future, binding ourselves by a solemn oath to fight to the death for one another against whatsoever enemies should confront us, for we knew that even should we succeed in escaping the Firstborn, we might still have a whole world against us. The power of a false religious superstition is mighty. It was agreed that I should navigate the craft after we had reached her, AND THAT IF WE HAD MADE THE OUTER WORLD IN SAFETY, WE SHOULD ATTEMPT TO REACH HELIUM WITHOUT A STOP. WHY HELIUM? ASKED THE RED YOUTH. I AM A PRINCE OF HELIUM, I REPLIED. HE GAVE ME A PECULIAR LOOK, BUT SAID NOTHING FURTHER ON THE SUBJECT. I WONDERED AT THE TIME WHAT THE SIGNIFICANCE OF HIS EXPRESSION MIGHT BE, BUT IN THE PRESS OF OTHER MATTERS IT SOON LEFT MY MIND. NOR DID I HAVE OCCASION TO THINK OF IT AGAIN UNTIL LATER. COME, I SAID AT LENGTH. "'Now is as good a time as any. Let us go.' Another moment found me at the top of the partition wall again, with the boy beside me. Unbuckling my harness, I snapped it together with a single long strap, which I lowered to the waiting zodar below. He grasped the end and was soon sitting beside us. "'How simple!' he laughed. "'The balance should be even simpler,' I replied. Then I raised myself to the top of the outer wall of the prison, just so that I could peer over and locate the passing sentry. For a matter of five minutes I waited, and then he came in sight on his slow and snail-like beat about the structure. I watched him until he had made the turn at the end of the building, which carried him out of sight of the side of the prison that was to witness our dash for freedom. The moment his form disappeared, I grasped Zodar and drew him to the top of the wall. Placing one end of my harness straps in his hands, I lowered him quickly to the ground below. Then the boy grasped the strap, and slid down to Zodar's side. In accordance with our arrangement, they did not wait for me, but walked slowly towards the water, a matter of a hundred yards, directly past the guardhouse, filled with sleeping soldiers. They had scarce taken a dozen steps, when I too dropped to the ground and followed them leisurely toward the shore. As I passed the guardhouse, the thought of all the good blades lying there gave me pause, for if ever men were to have need of swords, it was my companions and I on the perilous trip upon which we were about to embark. I glanced towards Zodar and the youth and saw that they had slipped over the edge of the dock into the water. In accordance with our plan, they were to remain there clinging to the metal rings which studded the concrete substance of the dock at the water's level, with only their mouths and noses above the surface of the sea, until I should join them. The lure of the swords within the guardhouse was strong upon me, and I hesitated a moment, half inclined to risk the attempt to take the few we needed. That he who hesitates is lost proved itself a true aphorism in this instance. For another moment saw me creeping stealthily toward the door of the guardhouse. Gently, I pressed it open a crack, enough to discover a dozen blacks stretched upon their silks in profound slumber. At the far side of the room, a rack held the swords and firearms of the men. Warily, I pushed the door a trifle wider to admit my body. A hinge gave out a resentful groan. One of the men stirred, and my heart stood still. I cursed myself for a fool, to have thus jeopardized our chances for escape. But there was nothing for it now but to see the adventure through. With a spring as swift and as noiseless as a tiger's, I lit beside the guardsman who had moved. My hands hovered about his throat, awaiting the moment that his eyes should open. For what seemed an eternity to my overwrought nerves, I remained poised thus. Then... The fellow turned again upon his side and resumed the even respiration of deep slumber. Carefully, I picked my way between and over the soldiers until I had gained the rack at the far side of the room. Here I turned to survey the sleeping men. All were quiet. Their regular breathing rose and fell in a soothing rhythm that seemed to me the sweetest music I had ever heard. Gingerly, I drew a long sword from the rack. The scraping of the scabbard against its holder as I withdrew it sounded like the filing of cast iron with a great rasp, and I looked to see the room immediately filled with alarmed and attacking guardsmen, but none stirred. The second sword I withdrew noiselessly, but the third clanked in its scabbard with a frightful din. I knew that it must awaken some of the men at least, and was on the point of forestalling their attack by a rapid charge from the doorway, when again, to my intense surprise, not a black moved. Either they were wondrous heavy sleepers, or else the noises that I made were really much less than they seemed to me. I was about to leave the rack, when my attention was attracted by the revolvers. I knew that I could not carry more than one away with me, for I was already too heavily laden to move quietly with any degree of safety or speed. As I took one of them from its pin, my eye fell for the first time on an open window beside the rack. Ah, here was a splendid means of escape, for it led directly upon the dock not twenty feet from the water's edge. As I congratulated myself, I heard the door opposite me open, and there, looking at me full in the face, stood the officer of the guard. He evidently took in the situation at a glance, and appreciated the gravity of it as quickly as I, for our revolvers came up simultaneously, and the sounds of two reports were as one as we touched the buttons on the grips that exploded the cartridges. I felt the wind of his bullet as it whizzed past my ear, and at the same instant I saw him crumple to the ground. Where I hit him I do not know, nor if I killed him, for scarce had he started to collapse when I was through the window at my rear. In another second the waters of Omin closed above my head, and the three of us were making for the little flyer a hundred feet away. Zodar was burdened with a boy, and I with three longswords. The revolver I had dropped, so that while we were both strong swimmers, it seemed to me that we moved at a snail's pace through the water. I was swimming entirely beneath the surface, but Zoro was compelled to rise often to let the youth breathe, so it was a wonder that we were not discovered long before we were. In fact, we reached the boat's side and were all aboard before the watch upon the battleship, aroused by the shots, detected us. Then an alarm gun bellowed from a ship's bow, its deep boom reverberating in deafening tones beneath the rocky dome of Omin. Instantly, the sleeping thousands were awake. The deck of a thousand monster craft teemed with fighting men, for an alarm on Omin was a thing of rare occurrence. We cast away before the sound of the first gun had died, and another second saw us rising swiftly from the surface of the sea. I lay at full length along the deck, with the levers and buttons of control before me. Zodar and the boy were stretched directly behind me, prone also that we might offer as little resistance to the air as possible. Rise high, whispered Zodar. They dare not fire their heavy guns toward the dome. The fragments of the shells would drop back among their own craft. If we are high enough, our keel plates will protect us from rifle fire. I did as he bade. Below us we could see the men leaping into the water by hundreds and striking out for the small cruisers and one-man flyers that lay moored about the big ships. The larger craft were getting underway, following us rapidly, but not rising from the water. A little to your right, cried Zodar. For there are no points of compass upon Omin, where every direction is due north. The pandemonium that had broken out below us was deafening. Rifles cracked, officers shouted orders, men yelled directions to one another from the water and from the decks of myriad boats, while through all ran the purr of countless propellers, cutting water and air. I had not dared pull my speed lever to the highest, for fear of overrunning the mouth of the shaft that passed from Omin's dome to the world above but even so, we were hitting a clip that I doubt has ever been equaled on the windless sea. The smaller flies were commencing to rise toward us when Zodar shouted, The shaft! The shaft! Dead ahead! And I saw the opening, black and yawning in the glowing dome of this underworld. A ten-man cruiser was rising directly in front to cut off our escape. It was the only vessel that stood in our way, but at the rate that it was traveling, it would come between us and the shaft in plenty of time to thwart our plans. It was rising at an angle of about forty-five degrees dead ahead of us, with the evident intention of combing us with grappling hooks from above as it skimmed low over our deck. There was but one forlorn hope for us, and I took it. It was useless to try to pass over her, for that would have allowed her to force us against the rocky dome above, and we were already too near that as it was. To have attempted to dive below her would have put us entirely at her mercy, and precisely where she wanted us, On either side, a hundred other menacing craft were hastening toward us. The alternative was filled with risk. In fact, it was all risk. With but a slender chance of success. As we neared the cruiser, I rose as though to pass above her, so that she would do just what she did do, rise at a steeper angle to force me still higher. Then, as we were almost upon her, I yelled to my companions to hold tight, and throwing the little vessel into a higher speed, I deflected her bows at the same instant until we were running horizontally and at terrific velocity straight for the cruiser's keel. Her commander may have seen my intentions then, but it was too late. Almost at the instant of impact, I turned my bows upward and then, with a shattering jolt, we were in collision. What I had hoped for happened. The cruiser, already tilted at a perilous angle, was carried completely over backward by the impact of my smaller vessel. Her crew fell twisting and screaming through the air to the water far below, while the cruiser, her propellers still madly churning, dived swiftly head foremost after them to the bottom of the Sea of Omin. The collision crushed our steel bows, and notwithstanding every effort on our part, came near to hurling us from the deck. As it was, we landed in a wildly clutching heap at the very extremity of the flyer, where Zodar and I succeeded in grasping the handrail but the boy would have plunged overboard had I not fortunately grasped his ankle as he was already partially over. Unguided, our vessel careened wildly in its mad flight, rising ever nearer the rocks above. It took but an instant, however, for me to regain the levers, and with the roof barely fifty feet above, I turned her nose once more into the horizontal plane and headed her again for the black mouth of the shaft. The collision had retarded our progress, and now a hundred swift scouts were close upon us. Zodar had told me that ascending the shaft by virtue of our repulsive rays alone would give our enemies their best chance to overtake us, since our propellers would be idle and in rising we would be outclassed by many of our pursuers. The swifter craft are seldom equipped with large buoyancy tanks, since the added bulk of them tends to reduce a vessel's speed. As many boats were now quite close to us, it was inevitable that we would quickly be overhauled in the shaft and captured or killed in short order. To me, there always seemed to be a way to gain the opposite side of an obstacle. If one cannot pass over it, or below it, or around it, why, then there is but a single alternative left, and that is to pass through it. I could not get around the fact that many of these other boats could rise faster than ours by the fact of their greater buoyancy, but I was nonetheless determined to reach the outer world far in advance of them, or die a death of my own choosing in event of failure. REVERSE! "'Screamed Zodar behind me. "'For the love of your first ancestor, reverse! "'We are at the shaft!' "'Hold tight!' I screamed in reply. "'Grasp the boy and hold tight! "'We are going straight up the shaft!' "'The words were scarce out of my mouth "'as we swept beneath the pitch-black opening. "'I threw the bow hard up, "'dragged the speed lever to its last notch, "'and clutching a stanchion with one hand "'and the steering wheel with the other, "'hung on like grim death "'and consigned my soul to its author.' I heard a little exclamation of surprise from Zodar, followed by a grim laugh. The boy laughed too, and said something which I could not catch for the whistling of the wind at our awful speed. I looked above my head, hoping to catch the gleam of stars by which I could direct our course and hold the hurtling thing that bore us true to the center of the shaft. To have touched the side at the speed we were making would doubtless have resulted in instant death for us all, but not a star showed above only utter and impenetrable darkness. Then I glanced below me, and there I saw a rapidly diminishing circle of light, the mouth of the opening above the phosphorescent radiance of mean. By this I steered, endeavoring to keep the circle of light below me ever perfect. At best it was but a slender cord that held us from destruction, and I think that I steered that night more by intuition and blind faith than by skill or reason. We were not long in the shaft, and possibly the very fact of our enormous speed saved us, for evidently we started in the right direction, and so quickly were we out again that we had no time to alter our course. Omean lies perhaps two miles below the surface crust of Mars. Our speed must have approximated two hundred miles an hour, for Martian flies are swift, so that, at most, we were in the shaft not over forty seconds. We must have been out of it for some seconds before I realized that we had accomplished the impossible black darkness enshrouded all about us. There were neither moons nor stars. Never before had I seen such a thing upon Mars, and for the moment I was nonplussed. Then the explanation came to me. It was summer at the South Pole. The ice cap was melting, and those meteoric phenomena, clouds, unknown upon the greater part of Barsoom, were shutting out the light of heaven from this portion of the planet. Fortunate indeed it was for us, nor did it take me long to grasp the opportunity for escape which this happy condition offered us. Keeping the boat's nose at a stiff angle, I raced her for the impenetrable curtain which nature had hung above this dying world to shut us out from the sight of our pursuing enemies. We plunged through the cold, damp fog without diminishing our speed, and in a moment emerged into the glorious light of the two moons and the million stars. I dropped into a horizontal course and headed due north, Our enemies were a good half-hour behind us, with no conception of our direction. We had performed the miraculous, and come through a thousand dangers unscathed. We had escaped from the land of the Firstborn. No other prisoners in all the ages of Barsoom had done this thing. And now, as I look back upon it, it did not seem to have been so difficult after all. I said so much to Zodar over my shoulder. "'It is very wonderful, nevertheless,' he replied. No one could have accomplished it but John Carter. At the sound of my name, the boy jumped to his feet. "'John Carter!' he cried. "'John Carter! Why, man, John Carter, Prince of Helium, has been dead for years! I am his son!' Thanks for listening today, guys. Hope you are enjoying the story so far. Um, if you want to check out the YouTube channel, I've actually been posting on it, uh, which I hadn't done for a while, but now uh, every Wednesday, we got an episode coming out uh, from the, uh, YouTube channel. So that is actually getting some traction getting some subscribers and stuff there. So if you want to help that kind of boost that up, uh, it'd be awesome. Go to another world I think the YouTube is linked in there. You can just search another world Audiobooks, and it comes right up there on, uh, on YouTube. So check it out and I uh, hope you enjoy, but yeah. And if you, uh, are enjoying the podcast, all I ask that you just kind of share it with other people. That makes such a huge, huge difference, um, to see, uh, the podcast getting shared by people other than me. So (laughs) if you want to do that, that'd be a huge help. And I would really appreciate it. So have a great week. Enjoy yourself. And we will talk here soon.